the shot heard around the world is the fact that our rights don't come from King George. Our rights come from a higher source. That's the beauty of our system where we say our rights come from God, our creator, that all are created equal and endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Proponents of MECDEC will say two different things happened. On May 20th, they declared independence, and 11 days later, they passed these resolves setting up a government. If you're a skeptic, you say, no, 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 this is all that's really happened. Um, again, it's interesting, but so what? This act by the mother country was something that was of great concern because it represented to them and to Pope this overreach. All rise. All rise. The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justice Justices. Justices. And the Supreme Court. Court. Oh, yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina. All of our citizens across the state depend upon us to uphold and protect both the spirit and the letter of the law, and to always apply the law fairly and impartially to every litigant who comes before this court. God save the state and this honorable court. Chief Justice Newby, it is a pleasure to have you back in our studio. Um, today, we're going to be discussing the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. May 20, 1775. Uh, what an exciting uh, moment to celebrate. What was going on in the American colonies and in North Carolina at that time? Chris, it was fascinating, not only in North Carolina, but really throughout the colonies. Uh, you know, you had your basic one-third of the folks who wanted independence, one-third of the folks who were steadfast in their loyalty, and one-third who could maybe go either way. Nonetheless, the colonies had sent Benjamin Franklin as our ambassador over to plead with King George to recognize our rights. I mean, we were, we consider ourselves Englishmen, and we believed we had the same rights as folks who lived in Great Britain. Those rights needed to be recognized. And uh, then April the 19th, 1775 happened. The unthinkable. Uh, the English army went and killed Englishmen. That would be the folks, the Minutemen at Lexington and Concord. They went to confiscate weapons. They went to imprison uh some of the folks who were leaders of the freedom movement. And when, as we call it, the shot heard around the world, and what would that shot be? Was it literally a musket shot? Was it uh, the fact that uh, England was killing its own subjects? Or is the picture greater? I think it's greater. The shot heard around the world is the fact that our rights don't come from King George. Our rights come from a higher source, and in recognition of that, even when the king would deny those rights, we still had them. So, uh, of course, Lexington and Concord happened. Now, uh, it's hard for us to appreciate 
that it took from April the 19th until May the 20th for word of that to make its way to Mecklenburg County. But again, this was before uh, any social media. Some would say, thankfully, before that. But it, it took a while for the message to get down here, that King George had actually killed his own subjects, uh, that the price of liberty, as Patrick Henry had famously said earlier, was give me liberty or give me death. And in fact, uh, death had occurred to uh, folks who simply wanted their rights recognized. So when the founders say that, that our rights and our liberties were endowed by the creator, what, what did they mean by that? Well, basically, there are two sources of your rights. Uh, one is a social contract. Uh, it's when the government says, we're going to give uh, you the people. Uh, we have power. We're going to give you certain rights. Uh, and if you try to exercise rights we haven't given you, there are consequences for that. On the other hand, if our rights don't come from each other, in other words, I give you rights, you give me rights, well, what if you don't like me anymore, you don't like my positions, then those rights are taken away, social contract, versus our rights coming from a higher source, which is our rights coming from God. And if our rights come from God, then each of us, this is not uh, a favored class gets these rights and a disfavored get those rights. No, this is all of us. Uh, as Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, it, it is a promissory note on government to recognize the equality of everyone, equal rights under the law. Uh, that's the beauty of our system where we say our rights come from God, uh, our creator that all are created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. May the 20th, 1775 is a symbolic date for North Carolinians. Um, it's on the flag. The other date that's on the flag is um, for the Halifax Resolves. Um, how do those two relate to each other? The Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence is the first uh, statement anywhere in the colonies that we have a right to be free. The uh, Halifax Resolves took place after the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge where we uh, had lost our first uh, North Carolinian who had given his life for freedom, and the uh, General Assembly meeting in Halifax uh, passed resolutions instructing our delegates in the Continental Congress that uh, we would join with the other colonies to vote for freedom. Uh, so we were the first ones to make that instruction, but we were also the first group to uh, enter its own Declaration of Independence. So in many ways, they go hand in hand. So when you see a license plate that North Carolina first in freedom, they're referring to the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, we declare ourselves to be free, but they're also referring to the Halifax Resolves, which is the first instruction to our delegates in Congress to vote for freedom. Both of those yellow ribbons on our state flag signify that we understand our rights coming from God and we have a, a moral imperative to be free. It's fascinating. Um, 
Is there anything else you'd like to add about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence or how the fact resolves or anything on this subject? Well, I so appreciate y'all doing this. Our state constitution since 1776 has set a frequent recurrence to fundamental principles. It's absolutely necessary to preserve the blessings of liberty. That's what we're doing today. As we think about uh, on April the 19th, the British had done the unthinkable, and uh, then they said, we can tolerate this no longer we will declare our independence. What a brave uh, act that was. They truly put at risk their lives, their fortune, their sacred honor, and frankly, many of the signers would give up those things in the quest for freedom. I hope that we will cherish even more the freedoms we have. Well, Chief Justice, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today, and we appreciate your leadership and your willingness to come in and discuss these important principles that are essential to our system of government. Thanks, Chris, and thanks for what you do to help us uh, uh, think about these fundamental principles that are vital. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state, and through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina today to speak with two experts on the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, Scott Seifert and Robert Riles. Scott is the author of two books and the co-founder of the May 20th Society. Robert Riles is an expert on the Declaration as well, and he's gonna show me some of the locations around downtown Charlotte that commemorate the events that took place on May 20th. So I'm Scott Seifert. I'm an attorney at Moore & Van Allen here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm one of the co-founders of the May 20th Society, which is the local group that commemorates the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence story. I've also written two books on the subject, one called The First Declaration of Independence, question mark, which is the sort of soup-to-nuts version of the entire MECDEC story, the pros and cons, and a second book called Eminent Charlotteans, which features many of the Revolutionary War heroes who feature so prominently in Mecklenburg County history. So the story of the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence uh, dates back to May 19th, May 20th, 1775, which, as many people know, is the date on the North Carolina state flag. It's the date on the North Carolina state seal. It's on the county seal of Mecklenburg County. Um, but the story begins with uh, a meeting of 26 local militia leaders, Presbyterian, Scotch-Irish uh, types, and they are meeting in the log courthouse in the center of what was then the little tiny hamlet of Charlotte to discuss the deteriorating situation in the American colonies. And it was clear that um, the colonies were in a state of uh, what someone at the time said was a general frenzy. Um, there was rebellion against the Stamp Act, against the blockade of Boston, and so forth. So they met to discuss what to do about this. And while they're meeting, um, a rider arrives from the North, bringing news that the battles of Lexington and Concord have occurred exactly one month before, on April 19, 1775. And the people in the meeting, which included Thomas Polk and John McNitt Alexander and Ephraim Brevard and, and other sort of characters uh, of the time, they go ballistic. And over the course of the next 24 hours, they debate a series of resolutions 
that we now call the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, and the most famous stanza of which says, we declare ourselves a free and independent people, and they observe all allegiance to Great Britain and the British Crown. And this MECDEC is the first Declaration of Independence by any municipal body in the American colonies at that time. And it occurs more than a year before the other Declaration of Independence, the more famous National Declaration of Independence that's written by Thomas Jefferson. So that's the MECDEC story in a nutshell. Now what happens is the original papers are subsequently lost in a fire in April of 1800 at the home of John McNett Alexander, who's the keeper of the records. And thus, whatever original papers are there are lost. And this kicks off a controversy that becomes known as the Mecklenburg Controversy in the 19th century, where historians are debating one another, and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams are writing letters, uh, arguing with one another about the veracity of the whole story. And Thomas Jefferson and others believe the story is, as he says, spurious. And Adams and others believe it's true. And so, and no one... Uh, because the original papers are missing, there's a bunch of circumstantial evidence, but there's not enough direct evidence for anybody uh, on either side to be completely comfortable that the story can be proven or disproven. So tell me a little bit more about some of the players and personalities that are involved in this story. Um, Thomas Polk, who's the sort of founder of Charlotte, is the, is the most well-known of the direct participants in the MECDEC convention. He, according to legend, calls the convention and is sort of the leader of the community at the time. There's others named Waitstill Avery, for example, who's later the first attorney general of North Carolina, very well known. Uh, There's about eight different Alexanders, uh, all from the same clan, and they were sort of, you know, the local, you know, mafia of sorts of Mecklenburg County at the time, of Scotch-Irish folks who ran everything. So there's a bunch of Alexanders. But the most well-known uh, person in the story now is a guy named Captain James Jack. And Jack is not actually a direct participant in the meeting or the drafting of the MECDEC. However, um, they give, once they've passed these Mecklenburg declarations, these Mecklenburg resolves, they give it to Jack, who's a local tavern owner, and say, take these to our North Carolina congressional representatives who are meeting at the Second Continental Congress in Philadelphia. And Jack does this. He rides over 400 miles uh, to Philadelphia, bearing with him these treasonable documents, to deliver them to the North Carolina representatives. And we have evidence and eyewitness uh, statements of people who saw Jack there that he did this. Um, Exactly what he gave them, who he met with, is shrouded in mystery, so we don't really know what he said or to whom. Um, But we know that the congressional folks said this is premature, uh, the American Congress was not ready for independence at that point, so they send Jack home. Uh, and that's sort of the end of the story, in a way. And this whole thing would have been completely forgotten in a, you know, an interesting footnote in local history, except for events that occur about 1820, when one of the sons of the direct participants finds in his father's old papers written accounts of this whole Mechdeck story, the text and everything else. And he publishes this in the Raleigh paper, and this sets off a firestorm because President, retired President John Adams sees this and is very excited, and he writes a letter to Thomas Jefferson where he snarkily intimates that Jefferson must have seen this, as he says, in the time of it before he's copied it verbatim. And so he is uh, very passive-aggressively accusing Jefferson of having seen this Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence and plagiarized from it. And as you might imagine, that sends Jefferson into a bit of a uh, frenzy as well. And the two of them debate this, and this sets historians who are pro-Jefferson or pro-Adams against each other for 100 years. 
Can you explain the difference between the Mecklenburg Resolves and the, Me- the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence? Sure. So this is part of the part of the story that has led to mass confusion and um, in the popular mind for many years, and for obvious reasons. So, as the story goes, there is this Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, which is lost in a fire. Um, and as the historians are debating this in the 1820s or 30s, the evidence is really on the side of the Mechdeck supporters. They've found eyewitnesses who are Presbyterian ministers or Revolutionary War heroes, and they raise their hands and they say, we were there, we saw this, this Mechdeck that, you know, we don't have it anymore, but this is exactly what happened. Uh, you can take our word for it. So, so the arguments really were in their favor. Then, a researcher in a library in Charleston finds in a June 1775 newspaper these series of resolves. Uh, but they're dated May 31st, not May 20th, uh, and they're very lengthy. You know, they're 20 resolves in number, and they don't look or sound at all like what the mech deck, according to the eyewitnesses, is supposed to look or sound like. These Mecklenburg resolves, that, as they're called, say things like, now that we are free and independent, you know, the fine for uh, skipping churches, two shillings. Um, Bob, you go collect gunpowder. You do this, you do that. So they read more like the bylaws of a, uh, of a new uh, constitution, let's say. But they don't sound like the Mechdeck. They don't say we're free and independent. We are juring our allegiance to Great Britain. So you have these Mecklenburg resolves, which are clearly legit, and everyone says, yes, these are real. And then you have this Mechdeck, which the eyewitnesses remember, and are these the same document? Again, they have different dates. They say different things. If you're a skeptic, uh, you say, this is all that really happened. This is the only paper you guys got. Um, these are interesting, and they're clearly historically important, but so what? They're not a real declaration of independence. And all of the eyewitnesses and the people you claim were there for the SMECDAC aren't lying, but they're misremembering after 50 years this uh, interesting uh, Mecklenburg resolves with a fictitious Mecklenburg Declaration, which they've conflated in their own minds as having existed. And that's really where the historical battle lines are drawn today. The, the, the proponents of Mechdeck will say two different things happened. On May 20th, they declared independence, and 11 days later, they passed these resolves setting up a government, but they're not the same thing. So the resolves are circumstantial evidence of the whole story. If you're a skeptic, you say, no, 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 this is all that's really happened. Um, again, it's interesting, but so what? Is there really like a presence here when it comes to um, knowledge of the Mechdeck or the Resolves or any, any of that colonial history? Um, do people know about it here in Charlotte? So when I was, I went through the public school system in Charlotte and I had, I must have been taught this story in this local history when I was in school, but I had no recollection of it when I was say 30 years old as an adult. And no one I knew had any recollection. So this, this story, this Mechdeck story, was at one time the biggest thing in North Carolina. We had sitting American presidents, uh, Eisenhower in 54 and uh, President Ford in 1975, come here for the 200th anniversary of Mechdeck. So it was a big deal. And, of course, it was a city and county holiday until the early 1980s. In about the, in the, the mid to late 1980s, the story just fizzles away for a variety of reasons. You have many people moving here from the Northeast or from other parts of the country who don't know anything about this. You have folks that live in the region who are moving out. Um, and so it sort of just lost its cachet. It's complicated. It's, you know, old white guys arguing about documents. It's hard to follow. It's a controversy. So the whole story just really kind of just almost died. And I remember, say, 1998 in downtown Charlotte, 
uh, crossing a busy street, and there's this old guy standing there in a Revolutionary War outfit reading a piece of paper. And every all these busy commuters and lawyers and bankers are all walking past him going, who is this crazy person? So the whole thing really was, if not dead, it was certainly on life support 20 years ago. And you know, this is not to take credit for it, but we, we had a group of individuals who just thought it was a cool, quirky story and who sort of brought back this MECDEC commemoration. And we hit a wave at the time where sort of Charlotte uh, was looking for something interesting, authentic about it. And people just really gravitated towards it. And then ironically, the growth of the city, and now Charlotte's the 15th largest city in the, in the United States, all these people coming here from Ohio, New York, wherever, want to engage with the city. And they say, what a great city. It's obviously 15 years old. So when you explain to them this history that the British burned the city down or all this, they're like, this is unbelievable. So it's really, um, it's really taken off again. We have a, there's a beer called the Captain Jack Pilsner at Old Mecklenburg Brewery, which has been a great branding exercise for us. The, uh, the icon of the local um, soccer team is Captain Jack on a horse. So all these things are getting picked up and people find interesting Ironically, not because of people who live here necessarily, but all the people coming to the area who want to connect with Charlotte. So I'd say we're at a higher level of interest and visibility than we've been for half a century. Uh, we've got the Trail of History, uh, which is bronze statues along the Little Sugar Creek Greenway, the first of which is Captain Jack. We've got the uh, Charlotte Liberty Walk, which is Revolutionary War sites up Tryon Street, which is a big tourist draw. And then we do an annual commemoration every year. So we've, we've been hopefully been part of the message of bringing this whole thing back. Scott, I want to thank you so much for uh, your time today and for all the information you shared with us. Uh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Robert, thank you so much for meeting us here today in downtown Charlotte. We're here to talk about the Mecklenburg Resolves, the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence, and this awesome Liberty Walk. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for taking the time to come down and learn a little bit about the Liberty Walk and what the May 20th Society, as well as the Mecklenburg Historical Association, is doing to promote uh, the Liberty Walk and to help the public uh, have a greater understanding of some of the facts and the people that were involved in the formation of Mecklenburg County, but most importantly, of course, is the formation of the Mecklenburg Declaration, which, according to the story, uh, passed on May 20th, 1775, and then 11 days later, the passage of the Mecklenburg Resolves. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are right now? We are currently at the, at the intersection of Trade and Tryon, really across from the Bank of America building in Polk Park, named after the understood founder of Charlotte, Thomas Polk. What was Thomas Polk's involvement in the Declaration or the resolves? Well, Thomas Polk was one of several leading men of Charlottetown. In fact, he was a very shrewd politician who had a good political working relationship with Tryon in the sense that he understood how to win political favoritism with Governor Tryon in order for Mecklenburg County to 
to really get its way with some things earlier before the Mecklenburg Declaration was passed in 1775. In order to understand the Mecklenburg Declaration, you have to have some background context to understand it. Because Polk and other leading men of Mecklenburg County really were about promoting self-determination for many of the Scots-Irish who lived in this part of the world, this western frontier. And in addition to that, they wanted to have as little to no government intervention with either the colonial authorities or, for that matter, the mother country and the Anglican Church. And some of those long-standing grievances is added the fuel to the instant fire, the spark for the Mecklenburg Declaration. Polk was one of the signers of the Mecklenburg Declaration. He was there at the convention, but most importantly, he was colonel of the Mecklenburg Militia. And he is the one that was designated uh, to call out the representatives or the delegates from Mecklenburg County's militia districts, two delegates elected to come to Charlottetown, meet at the courthouse, which was located right there at the intersection of Trade and Tryon. And their initial meeting was to discuss not just some of their grievances that the citizens of Mecklenburg County had about the colonial uh, authorities and their oppressive policies, which included taxation, uh, but it also stemmed from other things like the Marriage and Vestry Act, so there was a, a religious element there. But most importantly, what was happening in the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the Siege of Boston specifically. They were really, really concerned about Boston and that being an example of what could potentially happen, not just in the other colonies, but here in Mecklenburg County. Essentially, the primary reason, or one of the primary reasons why so many Scotch-Irish came to this area was because land was av available, but most importantly, again, to emphasize, they wanted to be as far away as possible from colonial reach, from colonial authorities. And this act by the mother country was something that was of great concern because it represented to them and to Polk this overreach of the mother country. Where was the center of colonial power back then in the state of North Carolina or the colony of North Carolina? Well, it shifted. For one, we can thank uh, Governor Tryon and the construction of Tryon's Palace in New Bern as one of the uh, primary centers, the focal points of colonial authority. During the American Revolution, those 
uh, government points established by uh, the Provincial Congress shifted to different areas, but uh, primarily New Bern. And we are on the Liberty Walk, is that, is that correct? That's correct. Uh, this is one of the stops along uh, the Liberty Walk. We have a, a brochure that speaks to each stop uh, on the Liberty Walk. However, it really doesn't uh, uh, speak to a narrative or a story, and that's what we try to do with, uh, with the Liberty Walk itself. So where are we headed now? Uh, we are on our way to Settlers Cemetery. So I see some pretty old headstones. Um, are there any significant people buried here? The first one here is, of course, our hero of the story, uh, Thomas J. Polk, uh, who is buried at this grave. This grave is not Polk's original grave. This was something that was constructed by his son, William, in, in honor of his father and his mother. So his father, Thomas Polk, and his mother, Susanna Spratt Polk, are buried in this grave. It's about a foot high with uh, old uh, red brick, and then on top there is a, uh, a granite slab that uh, has faded over a period of time. And it is of a early 19th century uh, construct. And it's uh, when you come into Settler Cemetery, you take the brick path leading off to the left, you pass a, a large, large oversized magnolia tree. And then just past that magnolia tree is the first grave on the right. Robert, I just want to thank you for your time today. This has been a marvelous tour, uh, very insightful. Just in terms of what I've learned today about the history of Charlotte, about the history of the Mech Deck and the Resolves, and just this his historical tour. Um, I want to thank you so much for, um, for the tour today. Christopher, thank you so much. You've been listening to All Things Judicial, a production of the North Carolina Judicial Branch Communications Office. Special thanks to our guests, Chief Justice Paul Newby, Scott Seifert, and Robert Riles. To learn more about this episode, visit nccourts.gov podcast. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe. Thank you for listening. If you could live at any time or any place in history, where would that be? I would have loved to have been there at that intersection of Trade and Tryon at the courthouse, hearing what was going on, being able to come back and say, yeah, it happened.